the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, January 25th, 1908. I'm Sally Helm. All month, there have been ads running in St. Louis newspapers about a magician who's come to town. Quote, the handcuffed king has left a trail of astonishments around the world. No manacles or cells can hold him. Kings and potentates have honored him. In all the world, there is no act like his. The handcuffed king is none other than Harry Houdini. And he is indeed one of the best in the world. Everyone knows that he can escape from handcuffs, from crates and boxes. He once escaped from a giant football. Everyone knows it. And so it turns out they don't really need to come see it. The famous Harry Houdini has been in St. Louis for about two weeks, and he hasn't been filling seats at the Columbia Theater. He hasn't been bringing in big money at the box office. Harry Houdini, it seems, is becoming old news. One night, the theater manager calls him into the office and says, look, Houdini, you've got to turn this thing around. You need to be bringing in the crowds here. You're supposed to be the best. Houdini is stung. He writes this all down in his diary later. Quote, I told him, I hope you are wrong. We shall see. The following week, Houdini spices up his newspaper ad. He is now the international jailbreaker and the handcuff king. And he also promises something else. Quote, this last week, new challenges and unheard of escapes from all manner of manacles and enclosures. It sounds like some advertising mumbo jumbo, but actually Houdini is planning something, a new trick. On January 25th, a Saturday, the audience members file into the Columbia Theater and sit down in their red upholstered seats. And this time, they're not just gonna watch Harry Houdini escape from handcuffs. They're going to watch him escape from death itself. Today, how did Eric Weiss become Harry Houdini, a man whose name is now synonymous with magic and escape? And when his career was fading, how did Houdini embrace death to bring it back to life? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Joe Posnanski is primarily a sports writer. So why did he end up writing a book about Harry Houdini? That's a good question. I was thinking about this idea that's really, for me, a sports idea, which is this question of wonder and what it is that sparks wonder in us. He says the great athletes of the past definitely sparked that wonder. But... I don't know if, if that wonder is still there. We're too cynical or too busy or maybe too intelligent about these subjects. We know too much. I don't know. 
So he was thinking about what does still spark wonder, or who. And he started thinking about Harry Houdini. Houdini definitely sparked wonder in his own time, and even today. When somebody does something extraordinary, we talk about it being like Houdini. And I was fascinated by this question, why is it that Harry Houdini has lasted? Harry Houdini was a real person, but he was also an invented character. He wasn't born Harry Houdini. He was born Eric Weiss. And he didn't just change his name. Over the course of his life, he also wrote his own story, became whatever he wanted to be. So at different times in his life, he changed when he was born. He changed where he was born. He changed what his childhood looked like. Which led to some confusion that lasts even to this day. Like, where was Harry Houdini born? Harry Houdini was born in, uh, in, um, uh, he was not born in the United States. He was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1874. But even an esteemed Harry Houdini biographer like Joe Posnanski can be forgiven for stumbling over this question because... For many, many, many years, none of this was known. Most people would have told you Harry Houdini was born in Appleton, Wisconsin, and that he grew up in this sort of Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer kind of life. Because that was an illusion created by Houdini himself. And many people believed it. It took an entire committee at the Society of American Magicians to nail down the documentation in the 1970s and figure out that Houdini was really born in Budapest. And even still, lots of people think he was born in Appleton. He did spend several years there as a child. The young Eric Weiss immigrated to Wisconsin with his family when he was four years old. His father was a rabbi, but he later lost his job. And so the Weiss family moved to New York City's Upper East Side. It wasn't a particularly Jewish neighborhood, and Eric's father struggled to find work. He would pace up and down the room in their apartment, muttering over and over, the Lord will provide. As he got older, Eric started to show some interest in magic. Simple coin tricks and card tricks. And then he got his hands on a book. The autobiography of Robert Houdin. H-O-U-D-I-N. He was then the most famous magician in history. Reading his story, Eric realizes that magic could be more than a passing interest. At the time, he's working at a necktie factory as an assistant necktie cutter. One of his co-workers shares his interest in magic, and the two of them decide to start their own act. And they called themselves the Houdini brothers because they thought Robert Houdin pronounced his last name Houdin, and they just added an I to the end of it. And that's how they wandered into one of the great names in the history of show business. Eric Weiss is now Harry Houdini. You could call it his first great escape. So the brothers Houdini begin their performances. Card tricks, disappearing handkerchiefs, reappearing flowers. And then tragedy strikes. Houdini's father dies after a failed operation. Rabbi Weiss is young and poor. And Houdini doesn't want to end up that way himself. He's 18 at the time, and he decides to really double down on his career. I don't want to psychoanalyze Houdini because I certainly don't have the ability to do it. But it is striking how different his life was from his father's life. 
Like his father was someone who, he was very much ahead in, in the clouds. Houdini was an action guy. And his father, you know, really struggled, never could really find a job. Houdini never stopped working. His father would always, the thing with him was this notion, the Lord will provide. I mean, he was deeply religious in that way. And that is exactly the opposite of the way Houdini carried on. Houdini was very much, I will provide. In the summer of 1894, Harry meets Bess Rayner, a singer and dancer performing in the show The Floral Sisters. They got married very young and they got married very quickly. And soon, the brothers Houdini gave way to a new act, the Houdinis. Bess and Harry performed together. And this period is when Harry adds his first escape act to the show, a trick called metamorphosis. It went like this. Harry Houdini would tell the audience, okay, I've got this trunk here, and now I'm going to go into this trunk. And they would tie him up, and they would put chains on him. Importantly, as he went into the metamorphosis trunk, he'd grab a jacket from someone in the audience and put it on. Then he'd get locked in. And then Bess, she would look to the audience and she would say, okay, watch quickly for the effect. And she would count to three while clapping. One, two, and then she would pull up a curtain and then go three, but it would be Harry who would say three. And then there would be Harry Houdini. Then they would go into the trunk and open it up and it would be Bess in there wearing the jacket of the person in the crowd. Bess somehow instantly got into this locked trunk and into that jacket. The trick was impressive, but for the Houdinis, it didn't translate into financial success. There was never enough money. They would go from dime store museums, which were just these off, 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 off Broadway type of theaters. He's performing Metamorphosis On some days, he's performing it 20 or 25 times a day. This continues for nearly five years. And over that time, Houdini adds a few more escape tricks to the act, like getting out of handcuffs. But he's basically a standard-issue magician. And that's not paying the bills. By 1899... Harry is ready to quit. Bess wanted him to quit. And he's so ready to quit that he actually puts out a little magic pamphlet where he is offering to sell everything. All of his secrets, he's going to get out of magic and might have if anybody had been willing to pay him a dime for what he knew, but nobody was. So Harry Houdini couldn't even sell the secrets that would later make him, you know, one of the most famous people in the world. Harry and Bess are pretty sure that their magic careers are coming to an end. But they still have some shows booked, including a run in St. Paul, Minnesota. One night, a prominent theater owner named Martin Beck comes out to see the show. And when he sees Harry do the get-out-of-handcuffs trick, he's intrigued. When he comes back the next night, he brings three pairs of handcuffs and challenges Houdini to break out of them. Houdini gets out of all three. So Beck invites the Houdinis to dinner. According to Bess and Harry, Martin Beck was unsparing in his criticism of the act. He says, your magic is not great. You know, it's fine. It's just, it's run of the mill. But this handcuffs thing you do, that's pretty good. The handcuffs thing is where your future is. If you could turn this into an escape act, people will really get into that. Houdini takes this to heart. It helps that Beck books the Houdinis on the vaudeville circuit for the first time in their careers. 
And really almost instantly, Houdini becomes a thing. Because now that Houdini was performing in front of real vaudeville audiences, he was able to get press. Nobody got press the way Houdini did. One of the cool things and ridiculous things he did in San Francisco, he essentially invented a feud with a person who may or may not have existed. This person, the professor, was supposedly calling Houdini a fraud, talking smack about his handcuff trick in newspapers across the country. And Houdini responded like, how dare you, you know, do this, and created this feud. And eventually, you know, the professor had to apologize. I mean, it was like this, it's like a worldwide wrestling thing, you know, where he just created this whole story. But just about a year after he becomes a celebrity in the U.S., Houdini decides it's not enough. He throws it all away so he can go to Europe and become a bigger star. In Europe, no one knows who Harry Houdini is. By this point, he has fully embraced his role as an escape artist. But the audiences in Europe are like, what exactly is an escape artist? Nobody knew what this was. What is this guy even doing? So Houdini had to drum up publicity, which, of course, he was great at. He made some news when he claimed to have broken out of handcuffs at London's famous Scotland Yard. The story is believable enough that promoters book him on the biggest stages in London, and soon on the entire continent. Houdini travels around Europe, selling out theaters and breaking out of police stations in most major European cities. In Berlin, he escapes from a series of handcuffs in front of 300 police officers in under six minutes, completely naked. In Russia, he's said to have performed for royalty and to have broken out of a Russian traveling jail. One of his most famous ever escapes took place during this period in London in 1904. So the story goes, a writer for the Daily Mirror went to his boss and said, you know what we should do? We should find handcuffs that Houdini cannot escape from. The editor says, sure. And so this writer, Will Bennett, finds a pair of unbreakable handcuffs. A blacksmith in Birmingham has spent five years perfecting them. These handcuffs are the kind where they're unpickable because in order to unlock them, you have to turn this long key, very long key, into the lock, and then you have to turn and twist more than one way, back and forth several times before they will unlock. So it's not possible to pick them. This writer puts the challenge to Houdini. Try and get out of these handcuffs. Houdini agrees. And thousands of people come out to the London Hippodrome to watch the attempted escape. They put the handcuffs on Houdini, and Houdini says, I cannot promise you, but I will do my best to escape from these. Then he goes behind a tent on the stage. He always performed his stage escapes behind a tent. He called it his ghost house. And the band is playing, and everybody's just staring at this tent. This was the state of entertainment in 1904. Then he comes out, and the crowd goes crazy. But the handcuffs are still on him. And he says, I needed some light. So I just wanted to come out and get some light. He goes back into the tent for a second time. A while later... He comes back out and everybody goes crazy. The handcuffs are still on him. And he says, I, I need some water and a pillow. He gets the water, gets the pillow, goes back into the tent for a while. He comes out a third time. This is 45 minutes into the act. Handcuffs are still on him. 
And he says, I'm very hot. Can you take these handcuffs off for a minute so I can take off my jacket? And the Daily Mirror reporter says, I'm sorry, Mr. Houdini. I cannot take off the handcuffs. You will see how they unlock. If you admit defeat, then I will take them off. But otherwise, I have to ask you to keep performing. Houdini says, fine. And he somehow reaches into his pocket and pulls out a pocket knife with his mouth. Then he uses his own knife to shred his own jacket. He cuts it right off. And everybody in the audience is going crazy, just going absolutely crazy. And then he goes back into the tent, and 15 minutes later, he comes out and he's free. It's this legendary thing. The thing I love about that story, 100 and what, 14, 16 years later, we still don't know how he did it. And people have studied it. Magicians have made their theories. Probably some of them have come close or maybe even gotten it. We don't know. But we really still don't know how he did it. Houdini returns to the U.S. from touring in Europe in 1905. And he is now this renowned escape artist. Over the next several years... He'd escaped from every imaginable trap that any human could conceive, right? He'd escaped from a football, he'd escaped from a mailbag, he'd escaped from an envelope, he'd escaped from glass boxes and wooden boxes and metal boxes. But eventually, people get used to the idea that Houdini can escape from anything. So they stop paying as much attention. The thrill is gone. And Houdini... He was super sensitive to the idea of becoming old news, that he would become, you know, Harry Houdini, remember him? By 1908, ticket sales are flagging, and Houdini has to raise the stakes. He wants to escape from something that even the great Harry Houdini shouldn't be able to escape from. On the stage, he's going to defy death itself. 
To demonstrate how hard this is going to be, he invites the audience to join him in a challenge. Hold your breath with me. Uh, Let's hold our breath for a minute. They take a collective deep breath. And of course, as time went on, you would hear everybody in the audience gasping as they couldn't hold their breath any longer. Then Houdini climbs into the can. Water sloshes over the sides. And then they pour more water on top of him. Just to make sure the can is completely full. All of this is so visually beautiful, you know, or haunting, whatever the case may be. Houdini's assistants place a lid on the milk can, lock it, and cover it with chains. And then it goes behind a curtain, and then people are they're just waiting. 90 seconds pass. No Houdini. Most people in the room know from holding their breath that they couldn't make it this long. Houdini's assistant, Franz Kukul, walks onto the stage with a fire axe. He puts his ear to the curtain, listening for signs of life. At this point, people are, they're sure that he's dead. Two minutes go by. Then three. Franz Kukul raises his axe, ready to bring up the curtain and break open the milk can, when Houdini emerges. Soaking wet. And the reaction was titanic. Just an absolutely titanic reaction. You would have people in the audience crying. You'd have people in the audience hugging each other. Houdini knows that this kind of escape is his future. This was the moment that he fully began to understand what the role of death needed to be in his act. I think he'd always been fascinated, haunted by death, maybe because he lost his father when he was young, but this was a very much a turning point for him. Escaping from death becomes a regular part of Houdini's act. Historians of magic would tell you that Houdini did not really invent any of this. But what they would all, I think, concede is that Houdini took it to a different level. He had to go to the next thing. He had to do more, more, more. In 1912, the milk can routine evolves into the Chinese water torture cell illusion. The only known audio that exists of Houdini is actually of him introducing this trick. Ladies and gentlemen, I take great pleasure in introducing my latest Invention, the water cell. Houdini would be suspended upside down in a glass case filled with water. So the danger is visible. And the audience knows... You're not going to watch somebody die right in front of your eyes. It's not going to happen. He's performed it hundreds and hundreds of other times. But it doesn't matter. That feeling of seeing someone in the water no breathing, trying desperately to escape. It's such a powerful image. In 1913, as Houdini is becoming obsessed with escaping death, his beloved mother dies of a stroke. When Houdini hears the news, he's so upset that he passes out. And in the following years, he becomes fascinated by death in a new way. He would start wandering cemeteries. He would read the stories of the people on their tombstones, and and he would write diary entries that were very ghoulish, almost. Death became a huge part of his thinking in his life. 
Over time, he adds more death-defying tricks. He gets out of a sealed crate submerged in a body of water. In 1915, he attempts to bury himself alive, but that proves too risky, even for him. And then finally, in 1926, death comes for Houdini himself. Lots of people think that Houdini died during a trick, because that's how it happens in a famous Houdini movie. But actually, it was offstage. And he was in his dressing room when a couple of college kids came to interview him. And one of them is like, I hear you think you can take a punch from anybody. Houdini had issued this famous challenge. But on this day... He said, yeah, I don't want to do that now. The guy kept insisting. And finally, Houdini says, okay... And he starts to get up, and while he's getting up, before he has a chance to really clench his muscles, the guy punches him several times in the stomach until Houdini finally says, enough. And from what anybody can tell, the conversation kind of went on from there. It wasn't like Houdini was mad or anything like that. And in the following days, he keeps working, even though the pain is getting worse and worse. His fatal flaw his insistence on believing that he's invincible and his insistence on continuing to go long after it makes any sense, to continue to work, continue to perform. He needs the stage, he needs the audience, he needs to be Houdini, even when his own life is at risk. When Houdini does finally go to the hospital, he learns that he has severe appendicitis, possibly brought on or made worse by the punch he received days earlier. And this time, there is no escape. He dies a few days later of an infection on Halloween. Almost immediately, people begin to immortalize him. There have always been people who are so fascinated by him that they continue telling his story. Because he tapped into something that we all care about. He sort of discovered how fascinated we are by escape. It was a difficult time in the United States, in Europe. War was going on, and the idea of escaping was extremely powerful. And, you know, to see this little man step on the stage and escape from handcuffs, it carried a power, and I think it still does. I think the idea of escaping is still very, you know, much in our minds. That's why Houdini has stuck around, and why when we think of magic and we think of escape, we still think of him. And you know what? I think a little part of it is the name, too. That name, Houdini, is a good name. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 